I am Pastor Nathan, and today we're going to be studying or continuing our study through Revelation, looking at the second of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, the letter to Smyrna, which is often referred to as the persecuted church. Now, with today being Super Bowl Sunday, some of you might already relate to persecution and suffering because your team didn't make it. Some of you are gonna experience suffering and persecution today if your team loses the Super Bowl, right? No, that's not at all the type of suffering and persecution we're talking about. You know, there is a language that is universal to all mankind. All understand it, but not all want to hear it. And it's the language of pain. When pain speaks, it often speaks very loud and very clear. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author, said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In the Jewish culture, there was a proverb, a Jewish proverb that says, not to have had pain is not to have been human. How many of us can identify with that? Even secular philosophers, Aristotle, you might be familiar with him, who was a famous Greek philosopher, said we cannot learn without pain. And of course, when we hear these types of phrases and stuff, we say, um, <laughs> isn't there a better way to learn? Isn't there an easier way to learn? You know, can I read a book? Watch a YouTube video, listen to a podcast perhaps? And I would say, absolutely, we could learn through those mediums, and there's a lot to be uh, gleaned from through that, but some lessons cannot be learned from videos or books. Some lessons can only be learned through experience. And those that have experienced deep suffering in their lives, deep challenges, deep persecutions, have a deep, deep character that you can only really get through pain. And in this letter we're gonna be looking at this morning, Jesus writes to a group of people that are in pain, a group of people that are suffering for him. And they're suffering the pain of intense religious persecution. They're suffering simply because they believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, whenever we suffer, we have a choice. As difficult as the experience might be, we do have a choice. Regardless of the source of suffering, we have a choice. You know, if the source of suffering is persecution, if the source of suffering is physical pain or emotional pain, the choices we have are either to become a better person because of it, and through it as the refining that the Bible talks about, sometimes persecution and pain is, as that refining purifies and strengthens us, we have that choice to become a better person, or we have the choice to become a bitter person. And I read this quote from somebody and I couldn't find the source of it, but it said, pain is inevitable, misery is optional. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a neat little phrase right there, right? You know, Jesus encourages this suffering church in Smyrna to be faithful. And he encourages them to be faithful even to the point of death. And the reason he gives is because great is their reward. And it's the same message he has for us today. This letter is the shortest of all seven of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, which I think is very significant because if you've ever been in pain or you've ever ministered to someone in pain, you probably know that when people are in pain, 
They don't want volumes of information and exposition. They're not interested in you telling them why they're in pain. They're not interested in you trying to fix it for them or anything like that. What they need in those moments is encouragement, support, and hope. And Jesus does exactly that to the church that he writes to in Smyrna and does that for us today. And so for us and our suffering for him, we're gonna see that Jesus speaks the same exact encouragement and the same promises and the same hope. But before we get into all of that, we're gonna worship him. Because Jesus is God Almighty and we love him. Sometimes we love him better than others. But he doesn't look at us and be like, oh, nope, sorry, you didn't love me enough this week, I'm gonna turn you away. We're his kids, he's our father, and he loves to hear us praise him, even in our difficult times. And it's often in difficult times of suffering we praise him uh, in in ways that are more pure than than we ever have. And so if you're suffering today, I wanna encourage you to worship Jesus now as we open up praising his name, glorifying his name, just singing to him our trust, our hope, our faith, our love for him. And if you're not suffering today, you're gonna worship him too, because he is worth it, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. Lord, we know it's you who walks with us through the good times and the bad times. Lord, it's you that is with us when things are great, and it's you that's with us when things are difficult, Lord. Lord, there's a famous poem talking about footprints in the sand. And Lord, in that poem, the person looks back and says, I see these two sets of footprints, God. You walked with me, but when things got tough, I only saw one. And Lord, so beautifully, that poem points out, it was because in those times you were carrying us. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us today as we look in this letter to Smyrna and see application for us today here in our own lives, that we would be encouraged, Lord, to trust you, encouraged to keep placing our hope in you. Lord, that we would know that no matter what happens in this life, even if this life is one of great suffering and persecution and that all it is ever going to be, Lord, if that's the lot that faces us, we know that great is our reward, that we will indeed receive the crown of life, God. And so I pray you would just bring us encouragement, Lord, today, those that are suffering, God, that they would hear your heart those that may be looking, facing suffering, that they would hear your heart. Those that aren't suffering at all, Lord, that they would hear your heart and remember their brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith. That God is a body, we would pray for one another and lift one another up and encourage one another towards you, our Savior. We love you, Jesus. We worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter two. Let's read aloud the words of this prophecy. He says, starting in verse eight, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Much like Ephesus, Smyrna was a very difficult place to be a Christian. 
The city is actually still there today. Uh, it's actually called Izmir. It's the third largest city in the country of Turkey. And um, like Ephesus in its day, it was a thriving city. Um, it's interestingly enough, Smyrna, which is one of the two letters where Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say to the church there. Uh, that area, Smyrna, is the only one of the seven cities that is actually still populated. There's still a city there today. And so you can actually go there and see some of the ruins of the ancient Agora that was there, um, I believe, uh, in the fourth century. But today there's about 2.9 million people that live in the area. In the first century, it was a place of about 100 to 200,000 people, depending on the source you look at. But Smyrna was known as one of the finest seaports in the world because it had this beautiful natural harbor. And Smyrna was known for its incredible beauty and its impressive architecture. Like many of the cities of the day, it had multiple temples to multiple different pagan gods. There was a temple to Aphrodite there, Apollo, Zeus, and so on and so forth. But like a lot of Greek cities of those days that had gone from Greek cities to Roman cities, it was also a well-known dedicated center of emperor worship, which was something that was a big deal at the time. Um, in 195 BC, um, the city of Smyrna wanting to get on good terms with Rome and say, hey Rome, can you come and protect us? They actually built a huge temple to the patron goddess of the city of Rome named Roma. It was the actual the first temple to the patron goddess of Rome built, and a lot of people think that Smyrna was where the, where the imperial cult started, where, where Rome started incorporating all of the Greek gods and eventually led to, hey, let's worship the emperors too, and all of that. In 26 AD, there was a six-city competition for the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and guess who won? Smyrna. They got to build that temple there, and so thus they were known as a neokoros, like Ephesus, which was the rare honor of a city that hosted a temple, uh, a temple, a place of worship to a Roman emperor, and so Smyrna was one of these places. Now, Smyrna's particular emphasis on emperor worship led to this place being considered a temple warden of the Roman imperial cult. Now, Smyrna was known for its beauty and known for a bunch of stuff and its emperor worship, but it was also known for something else. The citizens of Smyrna took great pride in their city's history. In 600 BC, the Lydian king Attalus conquered what was then known as Old Smyrna and actually devastated the whole place and left just a little tiny village there that was called Old Smyrna. And this humble village was between what was known as Mount Pagus and the coast. It was a, a, a hill that was next to it where things were built. And so there's a pic we do have if it's going up. Do we have that? There it is. That hill in the back, this is a picture from the 1800s of uh, Smyrna in the 1800s. And that hill in the back is what was known as Mount Pagus. Now in the fourth century BC, when Alexander the Great came through, he came through this area, there was just this little tiny village and he had a dream allegedly where he said the gods told him to rebuild Smyrna to its glorious, uh, uh, glorious state. And so he went through this whole building process to rebuild Smyrna. Now the tiny village wasn't big enough to, to hold the people that he had in his vision. And so what you see there is an artist rendition of what Smyrna was in the first century, looking from that hill, Mount Pagus, down to the harbor that was down in the coast. And so Smyrna was rebuilt as a spectacular city, 
uh, a model city for everybody to look at and marvel at as, as, as something that represented the height of Roman greatness. And so it had temples, it had a library, it had a massive marketplace, a gymnasium, a stadium. It had a theater that can hold 20,000 people. And this city in the first century was called the Lovely One, the Ornament of Asia, the Crown of Ionia. And that's a detail I want you to hang on to for later. So the, the folklore, the literature of this city was filled with references to death and resurrection. What they said, what they were proud of is that we were the city that was dead and came back to life. Now to the church in this city, Jesus writes, and I want you to notice how he picks up on the theme. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and came to life. Again, as Jesus does with each of these letters to the churches, he borrows a portion of the vision of himself that he gave to John in chapter one, and each time in each letter, that portion of the vision directly applies to the people that he's writing to in that city and directly applies to the challenge that the church was having or the conditions that the church in, the, in that particular city was facing. And so he says, the one who was dead and came to life. The citizens of the city that were so proud of the fact that they were the city that was once dead and came to life, Jesus says, the one who was dead and came to life. I'm the one who's writing to you. Now this theme, this civic identity that the people held onto there in Smyrna was also supported by the major commodity of the city, which was myrrh. You guys might remember myrrh from the story of baby Jesus, right? Frankincense, gold, and myrrh were brought to him as a little boy. And myrrh was a very valuable, very fragrant spice. When it was crushed, it had this beautiful aroma. And so some say that Smyrna held the exclusive rights to the import and the export of myrrh. Um, It was for sure the chief commodity of the city. And so some even see that reflected in the name of the city, Smyrna, right? Um, they, they, they see this, this idea here that this major commodity supported this idea because uh, myrrh was not just valued for its wonderful smell when it was crushed, but because of its smell when it was crushed, it was used in burial procedures, and it was something that was used in the process of death, right? And so um, Egypt actually bought a ton of this stuff from Smyrna at the time because they used myrrh in their embalming processes. And it's just an interesting thing to consider as Jesus is writing to this city because if myrrh was indeed um, exclusively imported and exported out of Smyrna, um, you think about a handful of years, you know, 100 years earlier when the wise men traveled to little boy Jesus, about two years old at that time, and they brought that frankincense and that myrrh. It's very possible that that myrrh originated in this very city came from this very city as Jesus is saying, look, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Now, it's it's no wonder Jesus camps on this theme in his address to the churches there, you know. This theme of life and death was big. You know, myrrh was used when Jesus was a baby. Myrrh was used at his burial, right? Their civic identity was we were the ones who were dead and came back to life. This whole theme is wrapped up in what he is writing to to these people. And so his opening exhortation is, I, Jesus the first and the last. That first meaning the first in time, the first before all things, including life and death. 
and the last, meaning there's nothing after me, including life and death. I bookend the very concept of life and death. I am the one who writes to you. I am the one who was physically dead and came back to life, or it was resurrected. I am the one who addresses you. And so he opens up and he says, I know your affliction, in verse nine. I know your affliction. Now that word affliction there means a distress brought on by outward circumstances. It's talking about distress that comes from outside, right? What he's writing to here when he's addressing them, and we call them the persecuted church, the suffering church, he's not addressing suffering that comes into our lives because we're dumb, all right? He's not addressing the difficulties and the suffering that come because we're disobedient to God. He's not addressing that. This isn't what he's talking about. Sometimes in our lives, whether it's in our personal lives, uh, in our relationships, in our work, in our business, we do what's disobedient to God, and then that results in consequences and discipline, and we go, oh no, I'm suffering. Well, you may be suffering, but it's not persecution. (laughs) What you're suffering at that point is the consequences of disobedience. That is not what Jesus is addressing here in this letter. When he says, I know your affliction, that word affliction can also be rendered oppression, tribulation, trouble, or pressure. And that's an interesting thing because the word in the Greek was actually a word used for an ancient torture in those times where a victim would be laid on their back and very heavy stones would be placed on their chest, one on top of another, until the weight of those stones would put so much pressure on the chest of the victim that it would simply crush them. Now the church in Smyrna was suffering persecution that was crushing them, that was crushing them. In the midst of this city full of pagan cults, full of Greek religious pride, full of Roman religious arrogance, and their many gods, Christians come along and say, we worship one God. We worship the only God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that led to crushing trouble for those Christians in this time. But much like myrrh, When crushed, it emits this sweet-smelling aroma. What we see in the church of Smyrna is the church, when crushed by persecution, thrives, grows, expands. And that's what happens throughout all of history, that when the church is greatly persecuted, it's in those times that there's the greatest growth. That although the crushing has taken place, there's this wonderful fragrance and beauty that comes out of that. And so he says, I know your affliction. That that word I know there, it means to know by experience, not just observation. Right? It's not like, oh, I've seen it. Yeah, he says, I know by experience the affliction you're going through. I know what you're going through. I've been there. He's saying, I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to be afflicted. He's like, look, I even died and came back to life. I know. And that's an important thing. You know, those that are in the midst of suffering for their faith, Jesus' message to you is, I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. You're not alone. I know. Jesus says, I am with you. Right throughout this whole thing, he's among the lampstands. He's intensely aware of the circumstances of his church and his people. And then when he said, I am the first and the last in his opening here, the idea is like, uh, look, I, I, I know the persecution you're suffering for my name simply because you're a Christian. And I'm there in the beginning and the middle and the end of what you're going through. 
I'm with you. And he says this to bring comfort that his presence is there with them. Because we know it is through Christ, through him, we can do all things, including endure the persecution that comes against us for our faith. And so it's important to know he's with you. He's with you. And so Jesus goes on to recognize three heavy weights on the chest of the church in Smyrna. The weight of poverty, the weight of slander, and then the weight of a predicted imprisonment and death. Look in verse nine again. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. Taking a stance for Jesus in the Roman Empire um, against their pagan gods, against the imperial cult, against the emperor worship, including in Smyrna, right? To be people who said, look, I'm not gonna say Caesar is Lord. To be people who did that led to a severely impoverished state. The whole social and economic life of, of all Greek cities was tied to the worship that took place in the cults. And every trade has a, had its own guild, or every, every trade had its own guild, and every guild had its own patron god or goddess. So if you were a leather worker, you had to be a part of the leather workers guild. And guess what? The leather workers guild had a patron god or goddess. If you were a metal worker, if you were a silversmith, it didn't matter, just every trade had a guild and every guild had a god. And so what would happen is to work in that trade, each workday had to start with some kind of worship or act of allegiance to the respective god or goddess of that guild. Well, Christians refused to do this. And guess what happened? Well, then you can't work here. They were refused employment. Nobody would hire them because you couldn't work a trade without giving the dues to the guild, and you couldn't be in the guild without paying homage to the god or goddess that that guild worshiped. And so Christians couldn't find employment in Smyrna. They couldn't work. If they were working and it came to light that they were Christians, they would lose their jobs, they would get fired. They couldn't enter the marketplace, much like Ephesus, to buy, because again, to enter the marketplace, you had to give homage to Caesar, and we're not gonna do that. We don't worship Caesar, and so, well, then you can't shop here and you can't buy here. And even if it was a Christian business person that then set up a kiosk outside of the Agora on the street, well, it was quite obvious why you were out on the street and not in the marketplace because you weren't welcome there. So you must be one of those Christians. We're not gonna buy from you. And so they were poor. They were in poverty. But I want you all to notice something very important here. Jesus does not say, I know your poverty. And well, you shouldn't be. God wants you to have abundance and nothing else. What we don't see here is he go, I know your poverty, if you just had enough faith and lived a victorious life, if you just lived your best life now, you wouldn't be poor. That's not at all what Jesus says here. The, the, I'm gonna say this as kindly as I can. The prosperity garbage that floats around the world today um, the, the infiltration of new age thinking into the church, this whole concept of name it and claim it and manifest it if you just dwell on it long enough, it is incredibly insulting to those who are suffering intense persecution, loss, and poverty for their faith, even in the world today. What a slap in the face. To, to dare insinuate to someone in another country, because it doesn't happen a whole lot here, although it's starting to happen more and more, Someone who's thrown in jail and lost their business and lost their income and lost everything because they will not recant their faith in Jesus Christ to stand in front of that person and say, oh, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's why you're poor. How disgusting. And so the, the, 
that type of thinking just insults and contradicts and dishonors Jesus, especially in this address to Smyrna. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with having abundance. Nothing wrong with that, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with praying for persecution to end, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that unless you're in constant persecution, you're not spiritual, right? That's not the point. But demanding, expecting it here and now in this life as, as a guarantee or proof of faith, right? You don't have faith unless you're rich and have abundance. To, to have that mindset, is, it, it's just, it's foul. Because biblically, our, our victory, our abundance is ultimately not of this world. It's not of this kingdom. We know that as believers. And to preach otherwise is antichrist. And so what we see in the world a lot today is, is, is from false teachers. They, they'll point to Hebrews 11, right? The great hall of faith. We're all familiar with it. And they'll go, look, look, faith. And Jericho's walls came down. And faith, you know, the, the people were raised from the dead. Faith, you have faith. You can manifest everything. But they always leave out this little PS inserted at the end of the chapter in Hebrews 11:35, where it says, other people were tortured not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. You understand what that means? We'll let you out of jail if you just say Jesus isn't Lord. And they said, nah. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated not because they lacked faith or weren't living the victorious life, but because they were. That's what the Bible shows us. Now, verse nine, he goes on. After he opens up with this idea, look, I'm fully aware of your present condition. I'm fully aware you're not alone, you're not abandoned. I've been there, I've gone through it myself, and I'm there with you right now. He goes on, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. Again, I mean, he's writing to poverty-stricken, destitute Christians that are living in the midst of a wealthy, prosperous, unbelieving city. Everybody else gets to work but them. Everybody else gets to shop but them. Everybody else gets to live life but them. Why? Because they claim Jesus is Lord. When we think of being rich, right, the common things we think of is, is material wealth, right? We think of, well, rich, finances, money. We think of maybe big house, nice car, nice clothes, right? We, we think of these types of things, but in God's economy, none of that is true riches. None of that is true riches. These Christians in Smyrna, uh, they, they couldn't even work, and God says, you're rich, Right? Sometimes the, the truth is, 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 is hard to, to accept, right? And, and, and God understands that because we see with our natural eyes and we see the conditions naturally around us. We see the physical world happening to us. We hear the things people are saying against us. We see the effect it might be having in our business and our work and our family, and God says, no, you're rich. And we might struggle with that. God, how am I rich? I can't pay my rent. How am I rich? I can't buy groceries. You know, there's, there's, there's countries around the world today where, you know, we might flip out in our culture today where it's like, oh my gosh, I don't have my cell phone. And, and 
I get it. It's like a pretty integrated part of our life here in the Western world. But there's places around the world today where someone's going, I haven't eaten in weeks because no one will let me get food. I have to steal it just because I'm a Christian. My baby is, is, is starving because I'm a Christian, you know? But Jesus says, you're rich. That word rich means plentifully supplied with what really matters. It's not money, it's not wealth, it's not stuff. It's what really matters. It's the idea of being spiritually rich, rich towards God. Right, when you read through the New Testament and you look at what's important to God and what he considers abundance and wealth, what you see things is he talks about the, the fruit of the spirit in your life, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those are the things that are important to God. And I believe as he was talking to the Smyrna church, he goes, you're rich. Because you're rich in love. And you're rich in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I heard a guy speak the other night, um, and he said the only thing that goes with us to heaven when we depart this earth is our relationship with Jesus and those we've shared the gospel with who received Jesus as well. <laughs> That's all we take to heaven with us when we leave this earth. You know, and, and, and we've heard that or something like that a million times in our lives, but it's good to be reminded, you know? Because those who have means, those who have stuff, you can be tempted with the thought of, do I really need Jesus? Right, when the money comes in, do you ever have to pray, God, I hope I can pay rent this month? You don't. You know, and we might you know, have a season where we're like, well, but I need to be thankful, and Jesus, thank you so much for my job, and thank you so much for providing, but sometimes we just get caught up in the routine of life, and we even stop doing that. But those who have nothing but only Jesus, Jesus says, you're the ones that are truly rich, truly rich. Now, again, I'm not knocking having, right? <laughs> I'm not to be up here like, shame on everybody that you could pay your bills, right? That's ridiculous, you know? But the idea is just having the right perspective of what matters, the perspective of what wealth really is. And so being, being impoverished due to being a Christian was not just limited to Smyrna, but it's happened throughout history, you know? And then there's people today that, oh, that can't happen today. Really? There's no city, no government, no court in America that would say you can't do business because of your Christian beliefs. I don't know, let me just make up a scenario here. Maybe you can't make cakes because of your Christian belief. You can't sell flowers because of your Christian beliefs. You can't work here because your Christian beliefs run contrary to the public agenda. That, right, that doesn't happen. First weight of poverty, second weight. Verse nine, he goes, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now the word slander there, we're probably all familiar with that. It's the idea of speaking about someone with the intent to harm them. Speaking uh, about someone that, that which isn't true in a way that harms their reputation, right? And so he says that the slander was coming from those who say they are Jews and are not but a synagogue of Satan. Now, this can be both symbolic and a literal reference here 
Um, I think it's both. Um, but, but from a literal standpoint, that in, in, in Smyrna of the time, there was a Jewish presence and there was a synagogue there in the first century. But in the time of Revelation, the time that this letter was written, there was this thing called the Jewish tax that had been placed. After the temple was destroyed, the Jews are like, we're not gonna worship the Roman gods. And Rome's like, man, what do we do with all these Jews? They're, they're just causing problems. And so they said, tell you what, we, we destroyed your temple, so we'll institute this thing called the Jewish tax. It says, look, Jews, if you pay this tax, you don't have to worship the Roman gods. And, and Jews would pay this tax. And so they kind of considered it an exemption. They had this exemption from, from emperor worship and Caesar worship and all of that. And so as long as they paid that tax and played along with Rome, they were tolerated and allowed to worship in their way. Here come these Christians, right? And the Christians have a very similar claim. Yeah, we worship the one true God. We worship um, um, the only God, but his name is Jesus Christ. And from the Roman point of view, it's like, oh, that, that political agitator that was around 70 years ago? That, that guy, that, that's your God? And then Christians boldly and publicly stood against Roman and Greek ideals. And this threatened the Jewish exemption from emperor worship. And so to distance themselves from the Christians, the Jews would slander the Christians and make up lies about them intended to harm their reputation. Some of the things they would say is, look, they have these love feasts. You know what they're doing in those love feasts? You know, they're just having these illegal orgies. You know, they, 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 they say they eat flesh and drink blood. You know, they're, they're cannibals. They're cannibals. And then at Rome in the time, the family structure, the concept of family structure was very important to Rome. And so one of the other things that, that they would say is, you know, look, those, those Christians, they call each other brother and sister. And look, Jesus himself, he even said, who is my mom and who is my dad? Right? They, 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 they don't care about the family. They only care about themselves because they call each other brother and sister. And, and so they would spread these, these rumors, these lies about the Christians and mischaracterize them. And it led to this heavy weight of persecution. Now, symbolically, those who say they're Jews and not, um, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul wrote this. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So, Symbolically here, there's this idea that, that you know, Paul defined what a real Jew was, right? And the idea is Jesus is pointing out when he says those who claim they are Jews and they are not, it's, it's, he's pointing out people who are claimed they are God's people. They claim they are of Christ, but they are not. And so, um, again, the, these people just slander and intentionally misrepresent Christians and their beliefs with an intent to harm them. And so there were groups at the time who claimed to be Christians, like the Gnostics and branches of Gnosticism that um, were like, we're Christians, those, those aren't the real Christians. And so they would spread these rumors about them to, to get them you know, persecuted and dealt with, but they weren't. They, they had false doctrine and they were actually serving the goals of Satan. But this regular ongoing public slander just added to the Christians being despised and isolated and alienated. And Jesus again says, look, I'm fully aware of what is being said about you. I'm fully aware of the weight of the slander and how it is affecting your life. And then verse 10, we get to the third weight. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. 
So all of this slander, all of these rumors, all of these lies and mischaracterizations of Christians were like, plus the reality that, that they wouldn't worship the false gods and they wouldn't hail Caesar. You add all that together, plus people were getting saved and lives were being changed and that was affecting the local economies and the dynamics in the city. It all upset the Roman leadership. And Christians at the time of this letter were already being arrested and already being thrown into prison for their faith, but he goes, look, it's about to happen and it's about to get worse. And, and when they would go into prisons, it wasn't like today's prisons, right? You know, what do you mean I only get a 42-inch flat screen? You know, um, and I'm not saying prison is glamorous, but prison of those days was, was the term dungeon that we hear about, right? Dark, dirty, infested with rats, filth, excrement everywhere. They were beaten, they were tortured. All of that would continue in these, in these really unsanitary conditions. And he says the devil's gonna do this to test you. That word test means to entice to improper behavior. The devil's doing this to get you to start doing what is disobedient to God, to deny your faith, to recant your faith, to stop boldly living as a Christian, to stop standing for righteousness. The devil is doing this to test you. And then he says this interesting phrase. He goes, look, be faithful even to the point of death. And we know historically that Christians were thrown to the lions in arenas, one of which existed in Smyrna, there's even stories of Christians that were sewn into the skins of animals and then tossed out like a, I don't know even what to call it, to let the islands then tear into that and, and kill these people simply because they believed in Jesus Christ. And Christians in Smyrna specifically experienced this persecution heavily. Some of the most famous martyrs of the church um, were martyred in Smyrna. And what's interesting, in the very beginning of this letter, right, he goes right to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? We've talked about that a few times, how this word angel simply means messenger. So some people, you know, are like, well, it's an actual literal angel, like a heavenly being. Some think because it just means messenger, it's referring to the, the leadership, the lead teachers, the pastors of the church. Um, Polycarp, who's one of the famous early church fathers of the church, was the bishop, the leader of the church in Smyrna from the end of the first century into the second century. He was a personal student and disciple of the Apostle John. He actually studied under the Apostle John whose ministry was primarily in Ephesus. And I believe he for sure read this letter when John got back from the island of Patmos. And I believe he for sure read all about this and he was martyred in the, in the 150s or 160s AD. But the story goes like this, that towards the end of his life, Polycarp had a dream where his pillow caught fire and he woke up and, and he told his friends that, that, you know, I had this dream and, and I think God is warning me that I'm about to be burned at the stake. Shortly after he had this dream, one of the local, local Roman leaders, uh, upset at the Christian influence in the area, had him arrested had him taken to the arena before these huge crowds of people. And the people there at the arena, as the story goes, were like, saw him, and he was just this really old dude at the time, and they kind of felt bad for him. And so the crowds were just going, just, just recant your faith, bro. I don't know if they said bro, but that's the modern translation. Just recant your faith. Oh, they felt bad, you know, oh, this, the poor little old man, just no, just, just say Jesus isn't Lord. And the Roman leader looked at him and said, you know, just look, have pity on your old age. Just recant your faith. 
Say Caesar is Lord, deny your Christ, and we'll let you go. And then Polycarp said this famous line. He said, 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has never failed me. How can I now deny his name? Roman leader got super angry, and he goes, I'll have the beast called. And as the story goes, Polycarp says, do what you're going to do. And he's like, hmm. Said, well, we we're already going to burn you. So they set up the, the pile of wood and, and started to get him on the, on the stake. And Polycarp's like, look, do whatever you're going to do, but you don't need to nail me to the stake, which is what they would normally do because as the people would catch fire, they would start to try and get away. Polycarp said, just, just tie my hands. I'm not going to leave. So they tied his hands and they started the fire. Now, a disciple of Polycarp named Irenaeus who was actually ordained as a pastor by Polycarp, ended up being a church leader into the third century. He was an eyewitness of Polycarp's martyrdom, and he, in the story, he says they lit the fire, and as the fire started to burn up around him, it just went around Polycarp, and the flames didn't touch him. And so they kept trying to make it hotter and hotter, and the flames would just go around him. <laughs> And the Roman leader eventually got so frustrated that he wouldn't burn that he ordered one of the soldiers to go stab Polycarp, which he did. And then Polycarp ended up dying. And then as the stories conclude, they say the records of his death weren't that he was burned to death. It was that he bled out. That's what killed him. Very interesting that he read this letter to Smyrna. But he was indeed faithful, even to death. But there's a phrase there, another phrase that's interesting. He says, uh, Satan's gonna do this to test you and you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Um, that phrase 10 days could be a metaphor. A lot of people read it just simply as a metaphor as like a short time, right? The idea of a short time. Um, and, and so in the big picture of eternity, the encouragement is you're gonna suffer for a short time, but, but your reward is great in eternity, which we'll get to in a moment. But it could also be a prophetical reference to the Smyrna church age. Remember we talked about how some read these letters and they, they see the church history laid out in these letters, starting with the apostolic church, which was the letter to the Ephesians, leading to the second age of the church, the Smyrna age or the persecuted church age. And part of that is supported by the fact that that word days there um, can mean a 24-hour period, it can mean when the sun's out, but it can also mean just simply a time period, you know, in the day of trouble, right? It just means a period of time. Um, but if the Ephesian church represented the apostolic church age, the Smyrna church definitely represents the suffering, persecuted church age, because you look at the history of the church, you know, the, the persecution really started under Caesar Nero in the middle of the first century, and that persecution was largely fanned by um, two advisors that Caesar Nero had. They were both Jewish converts, a man named Altruas and another one named Papaya. And they would, they would speak into Nero's ears all these lies and rumors and slander about Christians and kind of incited Nero. And so he would persecute the Christians, but then this persecution against Christians intensified radically over the next two to 300 years, all the way up until Constantine and the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. Now what's interesting is if you look at that era, right? And again, the, 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 the times, I, I, I think they overlap. There's no hard start and stop. But when you look at that era, there are 10 major periods of persecution that were led by 10 particular Roman emperors from the middle of the first century all the way up until the Edict of Milan. Very interesting, right? 
Um, the persecutions concluded with Diocletian, who persecuted the church between 284 and 305 AD, and his was some of the most intense persecution against Christianity. He actually took it upon himself to try and destroy all Christian literature over the entire uh, empire. He would send his soldiers house to house to collect scrolls and manuscripts, and they would have these big public burnings of Christian literature out in the street during this time. So the second and third century of church history, it's considered by many one of the greatest times of persecution that the church has ever known. And it was all the result of faithful preaching and dogmatic adherence to sound doctrine that came from the apostolic age. Um, and because of that teaching, because of the, the growth of the church, I believe Satan just unleashed a massive attempt to destroy the church. However, the more persecuted the church became, the more the church overcame its tendency to leave its first love, the more it thrived, the more it grew, and it just, it just kept growing, just like that myrrh being crushed and that sweet aroma coming out. So I think Satan learned a very powerful lesson during that time, persecution cannot stop the church. You will never stop the church with persecution, it only makes the church purer, it only makes the church more refined, more attuned to God. Right, so then at the end of this era of church history, Satan then does the opposite of persecution. He has the government endorse the Christian church, right? Constantine became a, Emperor Constantine became a Christian and said, hey look, no more persecution of Christians, we're gonna support and endorse it. And then he just kind of led to a commingling of the, the, the church with the secular world and um, that's next time when we talk about the Church of Pergamum. So. Uh, but to this church and those suffering like this church, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, be faithful to the point of death. So like I mentioned earlier, this letter, there's no rebuke, there's no, there's no correction, there's no I have this against you. It's just, I know what you're going through, hold on. I'm there with you, hold on. Don't quit being faithful out of fear, don't waver in your stance for Jesus and him alone. But notice he doesn't say, be faithful and the persecution will stop. He doesn't say that. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, it says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That causes me to ask a question of myself. If I'm not being persecuted, am I living a godly life? It's not a cut and dry yes or no type of thing. But the more we stand for Jesus, the more people are gonna come against us. The less we stand for Jesus, the less persecution we're gonna suffer for our faith. The more the church refuses to fit in with the world, the more it will be persecuted. Not that we should be cruel and loveless and unkind or, you know, not that we should make sure we're suffering persecution so that we know we're spiritually sound, um, but we should be standing for righteousness. And so, he gives the promise for this faithfulness and this nonconformity. He says, I will give you the crown of life. Interesting, remember I mentioned earlier that the, the place was considered the crown of Ionia. Right? Crowns at the time um, were, were prizes. You know? Now when it comes to the city, at the time up on that Mount Pagus, um, overlooking the city was an Acropolis, and the battlements of the Acropolis were in the shape of a crown. The city structures that Alexander built, because he built from the hill all the way down to the coast, as he built around Mount Pagus, people said that the, the structures were so beautiful they created a beautiful crown around Mount Pagus. Earlier, the crown of Ionia, I mentioned that. And then coins from the time even have crowns on them. The, the crown was an important symbol uh, in and around Smyrna. 
And like I said, in the day, crowns are typically given for victory in games, right? You talk about the Laurel Reese, you'd win at the Olympics. They were worn at festivals. Emperors, of course, wore crowns. But the Christians in Smyrna who were suffering for their faith, marginalized, isolated, re- rejected, denied, they didn't wear crowns. They didn't get to compete in the games and win sporting events. They weren't invited to the festivals and the social events around the city. They certainly weren't in the court of the emperor. The fact that they never wore crowns was a very visible symbol of their disenfranchisement from society. That they were less, that they were outcasts, that they were nothing, that they were nobodies. Jesus says, hang in there, keep going, be strong. Stand for me, don't give up, be faithful, and you'll get your crown. And the crown I give you is gonna be the only crown that really matters. You know, James 1, 2, he said, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so then he closes on this. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. You know, their stance, their faithful stance for Jesus, it caused the church in Smyrna to find itself in incredibly precarious circumstances. Affliction, poverty, slander, suffering, prison, even physical death. It's the same today. And it's getting worse. Maybe we don't necessarily experience the extremes of this here in the Western world like other places. But he says to the one who conquers, the one who prevails over the world, the one who continues faithfully by not letting up, not backing down, not conforming, not colluding, not recanting and denying, he says you will never be harmed by the second death. You go, what is the second death? Well, you know, there is a death worse than physical death. There is a fate worse than having nothing in this life always being persecuted for your faith in the life. There's a, there is a fate worse than that, it's, it's spiritual death. It's an eternal separation from life itself, the very source of joy and peace and contentment. It's a permanent separation from Jesus Christ. Those who truly know Jesus have the crown of life. And it says in 1 John 5, 4, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And if you know Jesus Christ, you will only ever die once, and then it's forever in heaven with Jesus. But unbelievers, well, they're gonna have to face death twice. And it's described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's what's ahead of you. You may have fame and fortune and riches and everything this world can possibly offer, but guess what, when you die, none of it goes with you. It means nothing. But those in this world, whatever persecution you may be under as a Christian, for your faith, know that Jesus is with you. Due to your faith in Christ, your stance for the truth, his word, his righteousness, all that comes against you for that, he knows. He knows personally by experience. And, and here's the truth of this letter, and this is the hard pill right now to swallow. The truth is, things may get better. Things may not get better. 
And I have to be honest with you about that as your pastor. Things may get better, things may stay the same, things may get worse when it comes to persecution for your faith. Today, more and more, standing for Jesus and the gospel and God's truth about who Jesus is, about how to live, human sexuality, everything, it it pushes Christians more and more to the margins of society. More and more, we're called names and we're despised and we're rejected. More and more, people are saying, oh, you won't worship the God of wokeness? You can't work. You won't worship the God of this aberrant behavior? You can't have a business. You won't toe the line? You can't work at this place. Some are losing their jobs and being denied employment, horribly slandered. And then in places in the world, people are even thrown in jail, and some are even giving their lives. But he says, know this, the first and the last has been through it. He died, and he rose again. And that's the promise before you if you're suffering persecution for your faith. He is going through it with you, and he will be there when you come out the other side. Whether you come out the other side of the affliction, the persecution going away in this life, or you come out the other side standing before him after you've passed from this life into eternity. And he says, don't be afraid, be faithful. And in Christ, you can. You really can. You can hang on. You could be better, not better. And know that great is your reward. The faithfulness that you put in Christ, the stance you take from him and all of that, it's, it leads to uh, an eternity in paradise with him. A salvation that is like none other. Death may come, but eternity is promised to you and nothing and nobody can take that away. Nobody can take that from you. Many of us are not suffering today because of our faith. Like we've been talking about, we're not being denied employment simply because we're a Christian. We're not being prevented from buying and selling and doing business simply because of our beliefs. We're not being slandered and misrepresented and mischaracterized or marginalized because of our Christian faith. We're not facing jail or physical harm and death simply because we proclaim Jesus as Lord. And if that's you this morning, would you remember those that are? Would you pray for them? Would you remember them in your time of prayer and that God would give them the strength to persevere, to not be afraid and to be faithful even to death if that's what God calls them to. Stand for them as a brother or sister. If you're not suffering in any way today, um, like I've been doing, um, evaluate. Just evaluate maybe why you're not being persecuted for your faith. Is it because you're not taking a stance? Is it because you're backing down? Is it because you're, maybe God is saying, hey, I want you to stand strong and trust that I'm gonna take care of you. But either way, God is faithful. He will always be faithful. He will always take care of us. And if his call on any of our lives is to suffer to the point of death, hallelujah. God be praised, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for who you are and what you're doing, and, and we thank you, God, for the opportunity to, to, to serve you. We thank you for the call and opportunity to love you. 
And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, here or around the world, wherever they may be, that are suffering the types of things that we looked at today, God, the persecution for their faith. I pray, God, you would embolden them and strengthen them, Lord. God, you give no promise that the persecutions will end, but you do promise that whenever it ends, that the promise of the crown of life is there ready for them. And so God, give them that hope. Give them that peace, give them that joy. God, help them to, to remember and to, to really grasp that true riches. True riches, Lord, are the things of you, and not of this world. Lord, that they would be rich in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of the fruits of the Spirit, Lord. That despite the difficulties in the material things of this world, despite the difficulties and the slanders that come against them, even despite the, despite the difficulties of incarceration or even facing death for their faith, Lord, they would shine a bright light for the hope and the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, those that may not be suffering that way, may we remember our brothers and sisters who are and continually pray for them. Lord, if we are the ones in this type of suffering today, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen the heart of those that that are experiencing this type of persecution because they're a Christian, Lord. That you would cause them to stand as strong as Polycarp did, to stand as strong as, as the hundreds and thousands of martyrs over the ages who have given everything and would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ. May you all be people who would take that stance in this world as it gets darker, as it gets more difficult. So Lord, help us as you helped Smyrna. Help us to trust you more, build our faith, that you would be glorified. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship, guys.